is not the kind of power that we ordinarily sense in our world and our culture and the desire for power that even exists in our hearts. The power of the gospel is that Jesus Christ changes the human heart and transforms us from those who would long for power to those who are willing to serve as our Savior came into this world to serve us. This morning we're going to pray for each other and for our church as a whole that we would have that desire to serve as Christ has first served us. Would you join us in prayer? Father, the words of the apostle written here in 1 Corinthians were written to a church that struggled with the notion of how the kingdom of Christ would come. He had already addressed in this first chapter his words to people who had formed factions in that church, believing that if they only associated themselves with the right people, that their way could come to pass. And I have no doubt that that desire for power also functioned in their homes, it functioned in their communities. It's easy for us to stand, understand because we have the same thing. We want our way, and we want it to come to pass in the way that we determine in the time we want. And sometimes what makes Christmas gathering so frustrating for us is that we're not simply around people that we enjoy, but sometimes we have histories. Sometimes there are things that bother us. And Father, it is by the power of the gospel that those things are overcome. And we come to see Jesus not only as a baby born in Bethlehem in humble circumstances, but we also come to fully appreciate the reality that the gospel works in a way that is unlike anything else. It is not a gospel of the good news that Jesus Christ is coming to establish political power, civil power, but rather the gospel is that Jesus Christ in his kindness has come in humility that he would transform us from the inside out, and that we might also live in humility serving those around us. And it is through the service that Christ offers us and that we offer others that the kingdom of Christ comes. Forgive us, Lord, for often not remembering that truth. Forgive us personally When we look at our relationships, maybe in our marriages and our friendships, and we think to ourselves, why doesn't that person just do what I want? It would be better. Forgive us, Lord, for that pride and arrogance that demonstrates itself in the most intimate of relationships in our homes and in our friendships. Forgive us for the way that is demonstrated in our relationship with our parents and with our children where we become frustrated with them because they do not do what we want in the way that we want, when we want. And we resort to sometimes simply trying to dominate them. This morning especially, we pray for those homes and those relationships in which it has gone from dysfunction to abuse. At this time of year, that becomes especially pronounced, and we pray, Lord, for deliverance. We pray for care for those who suffer in those circumstances. And we pray for all of us this morning that we would see the joy that comes in service rather than the sense that we are giving ourselves up and our way up. Because, Lord, that's what you're calling us to, to obedience and discipleship in Jesus Christ, not our way but his way, not our path, his path, not our goals, his goals. We pray that would also be true in our communities We're called to be business people, to be doctors and nurses, 
to own a business, to be students, to work in factories, whatever it is that you've called us to, may that attitude also dominate there. It is very possible for us to operate our businesses only to accumulate for ourselves. It's possible for us to be jealous in our businesses and our relationships with others because of what they have. Lord, may the coming of Jesus Christ transform not only our homes and our hearts, but also our communities, that we would be among all people those who seek to give rather than to take. And even in those circumstances when we are called to lead, not to lead because we seek to hurt others, but in order to help them develop and grow, that we might serve a common cause. We pray that would also be true in our nation as a whole. Lord, I hesitate to pray that because it feels in many ways that we've gone so far past that. That so much of what we observe in our culture and especially in our politics and the way in which our world works is not a seeking to serve, but a seeking to gather power and to use that power for the means that we desire. We do pray again this morning, as we have prayed many times, that you would raise up Christians for our nation who are able to lead, not only in business and home and church, but also in the civil sphere and politics. We pray that you would raise up people from this congregation to do that work. And we pray for those who are already doing that work as Christians and find it incredibly challenging. Lord, we pray that even today that you would give them tremendous wisdom about how to work well, to seek what is above and not simply here on earth, to encourage a society in which freedom can thrive, where human beings are honored and respected regardless of status in life, and where justice is truly done. Father, we pray that your will would be clearly expressed in our world as a whole, but especially through those who seek to do this in the political sphere. And we also pray for that humility in our interactions in the church. We pray that for our leadership. We pray that for each one of us who is here this morning. Church also can be a place where there is not joy and friendship, but sometimes animosity. We praise you, Lord, that you've spared us from that, and we pray that you would spare us from that in the future as well. And that would dominate, what would dominate is not our wills, but our desire to serve your will. Father, we pray that at this Christmas time, you would especially be with those who are suffering. Again, we pray for Jackie Scutton and Liz Powell. Father, thank you for the recovery that Jackie has received, that she has been able to return home We continue to pray for Liz that you would give her recovery, Lord. We also praise you with Jim Clayton that his cardiac ablation was successful. We pray for continued recovery for him. We pray for the great niece of Tracy Baskell. Father, we are grateful that she was able to return home. And even though she has a long road to recovery, Lord, we are thankful for the prayers that you have answered in regard to her recovery. Father, we also pray for Zach Francois and others who work in Haiti. Father, we are thankful, Lord, that Zach has received the visa that gives him a more favorable position as he works in Haiti. 
We ask, Lord, for safety as he travels, especially as he returns to our area in January. Father, may we find common purpose with him and others who do great work in Haiti. That we would not only love the place in which we live, but that we would also love other places. And that you would do, do good through our church to minister the gospel in a nation that struggles so deeply. Finally, this morning, we cannot help but remember the conflict that continues to rage in the Middle East. We do pray for an end to that war, but we pray that it would end with justice. And that through this war, you would bring long-term peace. That you would bring a solution that to this point has escaped any sort of solution in that part of the world. We pray especially for Christians. We know that there are Christians in that area who are suffering greatly. We pray not only for them, we pray for all who are there, but we pray especially for them. That through those words that we began praying this morning, through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, through those who are lowly and those who are humble and those who are willing to give themselves for others, you would bring a great gospel transformation in that part of the world that would seem impossible apart from your Spirit's work. And therefore, we pray with great boldness that you would do it. That in years to come, we would look back as a world at this point in history as a time in which your Spirit did a great thing in the Middle East. Whether that happens or not is yours to determine. Whether you bring peace in our homes, our communities, in relationships, in our hearts, that's also your work. And we are here to praise you this morning that through Jesus Christ, the child born in Bethlehem, born in the most humble circumstances, you demonstrated the genius of the gospel. And we pray that as we come to your word that we would also come with that humble spirit. Whether we are here every Sunday or this is the first time, whether we are here in person or we are joining over our internet stream, wherever we are, Lord, your spirit can work. And so we bring these things to you in the powerful name of that child born in Bethlehem, our Savior Jesus. Amen. We are turning this morning to a passage that I'm a little hesitant to read, not because there's anything wrong with the passage itself, it just may not strike you initially as a Christmas passage. But I hope to show you over the next little while that in fact is, we're reading from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. If you've been here in previous weeks, you know that we chose as pastors to preach in a series of the songs of Christmas because those songs are meant to inspire joy in us. And I'm hoping this morning in Revelation chapter 12, that's also what happens. As you get to stand back and see the broad sweep of history, this would be more than just news to you. This would bring you great joy. So from Revelation chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. And then I'll be focusing on the first six verses of this chapter. Give attention to the Word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because, he's, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And that's where we're going to end this morning. If I can just give you a little heads up about that passage, the way I understand the relationship between the first six verses and those that follow is the first six verses give us sort of a snapshot and the verses that follow help us understand more completely. And it's that snapshot that I want to focus with you this morning on this Christmas Eve morning. Friends, Christmases, I hope you will find to be true, are markers in, their, in your life. I can remember when I was quite young, receiving a beanbag for Christmas. That was a very special Christmas because I had the biggest box. Or I remember when my son came home unexpectedly, there he is. Or when we ate Christmas dinner at an Arby's because we were traveling during that Christmas season. Maybe you can find markers in your lives like this. Some of those are markers to celebrate. At our last session meeting, our elders started by celebrating the many good things that have happened in our church over this past year. There's a lot of them. We did the same thing at our last staff meeting on Tuesday. And once we got rolling, it was easy to find many, many, many good things that God has done in 2023. We were there celebrating a Christmas party, remembering what God had done, marking those things. But it's also very possible that these markers are not joyful things, but difficult things. The first time that the holiday came around and your spouse was not there. 
or remembering this Christmas because of the loss of your job and things are tight, or once again having a celebration for Christmas without a family family member there because he or she is estranged from you. Have you ever stood at the foot of a hospital bed and said something like, Jesus loves you, and the Bible says he will take care of you. But you were pretty sure on the inside that things were not going to end well for that person. Maybe you even felt a little bit disingenuous for saying that to that person. Or maybe you have been that person in the bed and you nodded your head because you knew that you should. And when I said that, Jesus loves you and will take care of you, you nodded your head because you thought to yourself, that's what I'm supposed to do. Pastor, say things like that and I should say, yes, I believe it, Pastor. But on the inside, you wondered whether that was really true. Maybe you've even been the one listening to that interaction I've had with your family member, and later on, you watched your family member die. And you wonder to yourself, what is all of this good news about Christmas? What if it doesn't feel like good news at all? And one of the things about Christianity, the Christian faith that I value so much is that the Christian faith does not ignore the difficult things. You can be a believer in Jesus Christ and not have to ignore reality. And the reality is that these markers in our lives, some of them are really, really great, and we embrace them, we love them. But let's be honest, there are other markers that are not so great. And it may feel like the world we're living in and the lives that are ours are not happy lives full of joy, but they are lives in which there are a great deal of struggle. We listen to the Christmas carols and we want to sing in joy, but internally it feels like we have to deny some very important things in our lives in order to sing with joy. So how do you fit those things together? How do you actually have joy about the coming of Jesus Christ while acknowledging that your son or daughter may have passed away this last year and you always thought to yourself, I'll pass before they will? How do you have Christmas joy? Because our Lord knows that we need to understand how all of this fits together, we have a passage like Revelation 12. I want to say Merry Christmas to you through Revelation chapter 12, but it's going to take us a bit to understand why this is good news. And I hesitated to select this passage to speak to you about this morning because I know it's going to take a little extra work to get there. So let me encourage you to hold on a little bit and to listen carefully, and hopefully as we walk through this passage, you'll come to a point where you can say, this is really Christmas joy. I'm going to start by looking at the first five verses of this passage. It introduces us to three characters. They are the central characters in verses one through six. The first one of these characters is the first one that represents some portion of reality. It's called a woman. This is a woman who is crowned with glory. This figure 
is illuminated by the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. And what we read is that she is expecting a child. In fact, she is very close to the time of giving birth. And about the time that she gives birth, we are introduced to a second character. This character is a red, fiery dragon. The dragon is shown to have great power. He is fiercely portrayed. So immensely powerful is this dragon that his tail is said to have swept into heaven and taken a third of the stars out of it. And the story says that the dragon has appeared for a reason. It is his purpose to devour the child the woman would deliver as soon as that child is born. And as we read the story, in spite of the intentions of the dragon, we are told that the child is born and is caught up by God to heaven. Out of the rage and the range of this dragon, this is no ordinary child according to this section. No, he is a child according to these verses who would rule all nations with a rod of iron. With the child gone, the dragon turns his attention to the woman. Now she is the object of his intentions. But she flees away from the dragon to a place of God's safekeeping out in the wilderness. And there she is taken care of by God for a long period of time. And those three characters, according to Revelation, are the characters that help us understand human history, but especially the coming of the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. What do these symbols mean? Who are these characters and what do they help us understand? The first character, that is the woman in the vision, represents the church. It's not hard for me to demonstrate that to you. The church is often represented in the Bible by the figure of a woman. Isaiah 50 and 54, at the beginning of those chapters, both describe the body of God's people as a woman. Perhaps more well known is Ephesians 5.32 which compares a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage to the relationship between Christ and his bride, that is, the church. So that I can say not only from the Bible as a whole, but also within the book of Revelation, when this figure of a woman is used in this place, the original readers of this book would have understood quite easily this woman is the church. And let me point out to you that it is not only the New Testament church Because this passage means to give us a broad sweep over human history, it is not only the New Testament church, but especially in this passage, it is important for us to see this woman as the people of God in the Old Testament as well as the New. Now just keep that in your mind as I tell you about the next figure in the vision, that is the child, who is this child. If you're guessing this morning, this refers to Jesus You are brilliant. That's exactly right. This child is Jesus. So that I could ask this question this morning with you, to whom is the Old Testament church giving birth to? The answer is, according to verse 5, it is the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, a reference to the coming Christ. Further, in Revelation 2, verse 27, earlier in this book, that phrase is used in direct reference to Jesus himself. So that I'm telling you this morning, in this section from Revelation, when Mary gives birth to Jesus, 
It is not merely a woman, any woman, in her case a poor woman who is giving birth to a child in a stable somewhere in the nation of Israel. No, the way that Revelation 12 describes the coming of Jesus into the world is that when Mary gives birth to Jesus, it's not just a woman, it is the church through whom God is working, the Old Testament church specifically, in all of its longing and its looking to be the one through whom the Messiah comes. Finally, through the Old Testament church, the Messiah arrives. Jesus Christ comes through the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes, born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But He comes because for ages prior to His arrival, God has been preserving His church. Jesus Christ is the child in the scene. So you might also guess that in this vision, there, are, there is the dragon that symbolizes Satan. We read that in the second part of this passage. He is called the dragon. He lays hold of the dragon, according to Revelation 20, verse 2, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. We read about that description of the dragon here in verse 9. The seven crowns or diadems on his head indicate to us the power the devil exerts in this world. The ten horns point to his destructive power. And his tail, which drew a third of the stars of heaven, is a reference to the removal of the devil and those who rebelled with him against God. Now, if you're still sticking with me, and let me just tell you these Sections from Revelation often, in my mind, appeal to the younger people around us because they require a lot of imagination. And the younger you are, the easier I've found the imagination is. So as some of us who are older have been struggling through to imagine, to see in our mind what John is describing here in Revelation chapter 12, we come to this point, and the point is this. What is it that God is telling us in these first six verses about the church, Christ, and the evil one? What does he want us to know? What's the point of describing this to us? The answer is this, and I want you to hear this. At least it's the first part of the answer, and I'll give you more as we go through this passage in just a moment. The answer, at least initially, is this. This dragon is before the woman, that is, Satan is before the church to devour the Christ child as soon as he was born. So that in the Old Testament, we can read the devil constantly scheming, planning, seeking to destroy the Christ child as he came to, the church, came to earth through the church. If we think of the Old Testament in this light, the events make more sense than they might ordinarily. The Old Testament is not simply a collection of stories meant to rivet our attention, as interesting as they are, or to amuse us, although there is humor in the Old Testament. They are not simply given to us as a standard for morality. Follow with a kind of fearlessness that Daniel showed, for example. No, the stories of the Old Testament are a record, hear this, of God's determination to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into this world by his people. And in spite of the devil's persistent attempts to keep that from happening, 
By the time that we open our Bibles to Luke 2 or Matthew 1, what we discover is that the Old Testament leads to this climactic moment where in the great struggle between a promise-keeping God and a promise-destroying devil, God himself is the victor. If you're wondering how that works out, let me use one example in the Old Testament. I'm going to belabor this just a little bit so you can appreciate the force of what John is saying. I want you to think of the Old Testament character Abraham. He's described later on as the father of the faithful. He is a prime example of one who had faith. He had faith enough to act, as we are told in Genesis 15, verse 6. That faith was centered in the promise that God had given Abraham that through him and through his children, the promised Savior would arrive. But I want you to think of the many times in Abraham's life where there was intense struggle, when it looked like the battle was being lost. Think of Abraham and Sarah agonizing over no children. How in the world could the Messiah come through their line if they didn't have a line? So Abraham takes matters into his own hands, and he marries Hagar, at least goes into Hagar, and here he said in his own mind is the promised son, even if that child did not come in the way that God had approved of. And you can see in the heart of Abraham the struggle to follow after God, to believe in his promises, or put it on the other, in the other way. You can see the evil one plotting, working, scheming. So that when that son finally came, that son of the promise, Isaac, we see not only joy in Abraham, but we see struggle in Abraham's heart, even to the point that when God says, the calling is to love me and be faithful to me above Isaac, that Abraham had to struggle to obey God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the devil was scheming, seeking to drive a wedge between God's people and their God. In his mind, if the division could be accomplished, the Savior would not come. The child a woman was struggling to, be, to bring forth would be destroyed. Think of all the other times in the Old Testament when the promise appeared to be in jeopardy. Jacob in danger of losing his life at the hands of his brother Esau. Jacob's sons without food before their brother brings them to Egypt. Disobedience against God which threatened the people time and again as they traveled toward the promised land. Kings in Canaan that did not lead the people of God toward God but away from God. Foreign nations, Assyria, Babylonia, the Chaldeans who scattered the covenant people across the known world. And even when Jesus finally did come, shortly after he was born, there was a clandestine request from King Herod to the wise men to bring word of the king's location so that I might also go and worship him. That is, tell me where he is so I can finally put him to death. In each case, we read in the scriptures another instance of the conflict symbolized in Revelation chapter 12 the dragon against the woman, the child potentially in danger, but at every point, the dragon fails. Because here we are, remembering some 2,000 years later, not only the coming of Jesus, but the failure of the evil one. Because Jesus did come. 
He was born. He did live. He did die. He did rise again. He did ascend. So that what verse 5 says in prediction is now reality. It says, and she bore a child, and the child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the child will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It may have appeared in the moment like some of the battles were lost in the Old Testament. And we have to suspend our sense of what is working sometimes in the lives of the Old Testament characters to look at the bigger the bigger reality of what God was doing. If you look then at verse 6, you find these interesting words, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God to which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. If you agree with me that up to this point, the woman who is being described here is the church, the story of Revelation 12 is not only about the struggle in the Old Testament for Jesus to be born and the battles that were waging there, but also it is the story of what happens to the church after Jesus ascends. And the reason I have belabored the point this morning, maybe even more than what you sort of followed along. Maybe I stretched your ability to follow me this morning, but the reason I belabor the point about the Old Testament is because of what we read there in verse 6. That the protection of God was not only for his son and the coming of his son to the Old Testament, but the protection of God is also for the church Now, for if I can contrast it this way, there is throughout the Scriptures the sense that we have that sometimes things are not well with God's people, the church. Or maybe if I can be realistic, when I noted earlier in this sermon, the struggles that exist in your own heart, in your homes, in your communities, in the world in which we live, and sometimes within the body of Christ as a whole. We look out and we say, I cannot understand what God is doing. And it feels like we are standing at the foot of the bed watching something die. Maybe it's our relationship with another person. Maybe it is our life within our family. There is something that we would want to live and flourish and grow. And instead, what do we observe? But that thing die. Do you understand? I literally think I could go up and down every one of these rows with every person who is here, and you would have a story that would resonate precisely with what I am saying. In a world in which you live with the Christ having come because God kept his promise, there are times when you wonder to yourself, maybe at 2 a.m. in the morning, my favorite time to wonder about things like that, if God's promises are really true, why is this my reality? If God keeps his promises, why am I not seeing that promise fulfilled in my life now? Maybe during this past year, you've been able to wonder that question very tangibly in the death of someone near to you. Maybe it is in one of those relationships that was fractured and you cannot imagine how it will ever be put together. 
Maybe it is in the loss of the job or you're struggling through some very serious health, serious health, health concern at the moment. And you don't see the end. At least the end doesn't look very good. What does Revelation 12 mean then? What does it mean then? I pose that question very generally, and yet I want you to hear that within the context of Revelation 12. Because when Revelation 12 describes that Jesus is ascended, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God, it is John's way of describing a place of safety for the church of Jesus Christ. And if you read on into the rest of Revelation 12, what you discover is that behind the scenes, there's a great war being waged. We can observe wars happening in our world. If you were to travel to Palestine today, you would hear the guns. You might even hear the bullets whistling by. There are people dying. And you think to yourself, that's where the war is being waged. That's real war. I don't mean to minimize that at all. But according to the book of Ephesians, the war that's being waged that matters eternally is not between flesh and blood. You know what it says? It's not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers. It is the great war that is being waged that is described here in Revelation 12 between the forces of evil and the forces of good, between the evil one himself who would seek to overthrow all that belongs to God and God and his faithful promises to care for and redeem his people. That is the reality of our situation, as difficult sometimes as it is to see. And when you read Revelation chapter 12 at Christmas time, what you ought to hear is not simply that God preserved Jesus Christ to come into this world, but there's a deeper reality that I want to press home to you now. Do you realize that Revelation chapter 12 was not written simply for the moment? The book of Revelation as a whole was written for us. It was written to the church of Jesus Christ who would not simply be here at the moment that John wrote. No, it would be delivered to God's people many years later. And the entire book is written to summarize human history for us so that in our moments as we live in that history, we would have a sense that life is not out of control, but there is a God who is ruling. That the protection that God gave to Jesus Christ that he was born, lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, here's a reality that protection also extends to you. And if there's nothing else that you remember from this sermon on Christmas Eve, here's the first thing I'd want you to remember. It is that the same protection that God gave to his son Jesus is a protection that he gives to you. It's of the same quality. As certainly as Jesus came into this world at Christmas time, whenever that was in history, as certainly as he was God's protection that brought Jesus into that world, so certain is God's protection for you. That is God's kindness to you. That's his grace. But even furthermore, and here's the second thing I would want you to consider on this Christmas Eve morning that just like we can read through the Old Testament, through the ups and downs of Abraham or David, 
You can pick your favorite Old Testament saying, and what you will find there are the ups and downs, sometimes faith, sometimes struggling to believe. What you see in the lives of those characters are battles being waged. If we look at it from the perspective of Ephesians, what we see is the battle being waged in the lives of these characters between the force of good and the forces of evil, between God and the evil one. And in that struggle, in the lives of these saints, it's not simply that they believed and God used them, but these saints are given to us that we might see that in the battles of life, the battles that are being described here, the battles are described in the Old Testament. Listen to this, please. The reason those battles are described with such intricacy is so that this morning when we read them in light of Revelation chapter 12, you would know that even though it sometimes feels as though in our reality the battles are uncertain, the victory belongs to our God. I want you to know that on this Christmas Eve. Whether that's reflective for you or whether that anticipates next year, you don't know what next year holds. Just as you could have never imagined last year, at the end of 2022, what 23 would hold. And because of that uncertainty, because it feels sometimes like the battles that are being waged in our lives, sometimes the battles don't work out in the way that we would want. They really don't. Those battles are real, and you don't need to deny them or pretend like they don't exist. Those battles are very real. And even though in this past year and in this coming year, the battles will go this way and that, and you're sometimes not sure how they turn out, what you need to hear from Revelation chapter 12 is that in the end, in spite of the uncertainty sometimes in the battles, God does win the war. And there is no greater confirmation of that than the birth of Jesus Christ. Through that birth, his life, through his life, that death, through the death, that resurrection, through that resurrection, his ascension, where he is ruling at this very moment over all time and space for the benefit of his people. And that's good Christmas news. That takes the story of Jesus and his birth simply from something we remember and celebrate. Praise the Lord. Sing the carols. Jesus came into the world incredible, thankful. It extends our eyes to see the baby that was born is now the king who is ruling. And he will rule with a rod of iron that is not of cruelty, but a rod of certainty. And he will rule in your life and mine and over all of those who belong to him. In fact, all of history to the point at which everything that is wrong will be made right. Our God reigns over all. That is your Christmas Eve good news this morning. Let's bow in prayer.
Father, to all those that you've called to believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel message that our God is great and he chooses to rule through Jesus is the greatest of all news. Maybe we're looking forward to gathering with family or we've got that special gift. We celebrate all of that. Those are your good gifts to us. We are very thankful. But more than all of that is the reality that in Jesus Christ, our history is not uncertain. Our future is not a matter simply of our choices or of random occurrences, but our future is absolutely under the control of a God who will bring all things to a good end. And therefore, our Christmas celebration is not only retrospective, it is prospective. It's not only celebrating what was, and we should celebrate that, it is also celebrating what is to come. And so with your saints across the world who've celebrated the birth of Jesus for many thousands of years, so we join our voices with Him this morning, thankful for what you have done in bringing your Son, and thankful for the ruling that He is doing now. Father, we even pray on this Christmas Eve morning that the second return of our Jesus, our Savior, would be soon, that we would rejoice in His presence as we see Him face to face. Lord, answer this prayer as your people come in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one of the great Christmas